0: Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are going through this series in the book of Judges, and uh, we've kind of camped out looking at Gideon for a couple of weeks. And today we're going to kind of wrap up the section about Gideon in particular and see sort of a turn for the worse. Uh, Gideon, uh, it's been an interesting ride learning about him, kind of walking with him on this journey that God's been using him on. And and we're going to see things kind of go sour a little bit today. But again, these are the stories, these are the lessons that we can draw from to make sure that um, we're being sensitive to kind of how our heart is and how our relationship with the Lord is so that we don't sort of follow in his footsteps. Right? So so let me pray, and then let's uh, kind of just jump into the message this morning. Let's pray. God, just pray that you would be with us this morning, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, help us to hear what you want us to hear, and, and um, Lord, help me to say what you want me to say, and nothing more, nothing less. And I just pray that, um, God, you would be glorified and happy at our time together, that you would, uh, Lord, draw us to become... Um, closer to you and more and more like your son. Let me pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'm going to just kind of give us a little uh, little kind of catch-up story. Uh, and all of this in your notes, it's you can see where I wrote some stuff in there about uh, where to find this in the end of Judges chapter 7 through sort of the middle of Judges chapter 8, kind of paraphrasing some of that stuff. And I put that there for you because just because I'm kind of giving you the highlight reel doesn't mean, hey, don't go take the time and read it on your own, right? Like every Sunday, whenever you hear somebody teach or preach, like it's awesome to learn from someone else. And then I think it's even just... Um, that much more healthy to dig into God's word on your own and even just go back and go, hey, I, he said this, where did that come from? And reread it and look at it for yourself so that you're not having a faith that's built only on just what you hear other people say about the Bible, but you're actually reaffirming it by what you're reading yourself. Right? So just a reminder. Um, and then, uh, so this story last week we looked at Gideon and he kind of finished off strong in the story last week because he had have uh, been whittled down, all of those soldiers, all of the recruits that came to them had been whittled down to 300. And they uh, have this miraculous uh, encounter with the Midianite army, which we're gonna find out later, probably numbered maybe close to 150,000 strong. It was a huge, huge uh, uh, victory. And, and we see that these 300 win this victory. The Midianites are retreating. They're running back to kind of regroup. In the midst of that, There's lots of chaos and killing, and it sounds a lot more like, particularly some of the stuff we're going to look at today. It's a little bit more like watching a gladiator movie than most of the time what you think about for Bible stuff. Like it's pretty gory stuff that's going on, and and so at the end of this uh, last week, we saw Gideon kind of triumphant. And there's, it's like this high point in the story where God has done what God said he would do. He proved he could do what he said he could do. And it's like there's this opportunity for everybody to just sort of turn and go, man, God is amazing. Our God has rescued us. But we see something start to shift this week as we dig into the rest of the story and Judges about Gideon. So Gideon uh, wants to give chase and go after the rest of the Midianite soldiers, and he rallies some of the other Israelite tribes to help him. One of the tribes that comes to his call is a big, strong, wealthy tribe, pretty important, called Ephraim, and uh, they go down and actually capture the two uh, Midianite commanders, kind of like their top generals of the Midianite army me, uh, Oreb and Zeb, right? So here's a couple of names that you don't want to use when you're thinking of kid names. Oreb and Zeb, not not on the list. And so they capture them, and uh, in gladiator fashion, it's off with their heads, and they bring the heads back to Gideon, and they are like, hey, look what we did. And oh, by the way, we've got something to tell you. And now, this might be one of those opportunities where you sort of feel like, hey, this would be a good time to pause and sort of give credit to God for what God has done, the victory that's been accomplished. But it doesn't go like that at all. Ephraim actually is mad at Gideon because they're like, listen, it's essentially their little kind of underhanded, passive-aggressive way of saying, hey, don't you know who we are? Don't you know how awesome we are? Don't you know that we're the biggest, baddest, toughest guys around? And I don't know where you get off calling us to come help with the cleanup.'" Like, we should have been on the front lines of this battle, and we should have been among the people getting praise and glory and victory for this great battle. Like, where do you, where do you get off calling us for cleanup duty? And we see something start to shift in Gideon. He starts to play to his audience... And tell people what they want to hear as opposed to telling the story of how he got there and how God was involved and what happened. Instead of going like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this was not my idea. Uh, this none of this happened the way I planned. Here's the story. And he could have told this amazing God story that did what it was designed to do, prove that only God could have done this, that there's no way that the Israelites could have done this with just these 300, right? That was the whole point of God narrowing down the army. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He starts to to play to the to the, to the crowd, to the, the Ephraimites that are saying, Hey, how come you just picked us late? And he tells them what they want to hear. He says, Oh my gosh, you guys, look, you are so strong. You're so amazing. Look at what God has done for you. You, God's given you their top generals. Like I was in the battle. None of us even killed anybody. We, like, I, who am I? I'm nobody compared to you. Look at this great victory that you guys have succumb, you know, oh, oh, of, uh, accomplished. And, and it's a little bit like, really puffing them up, stroking their ego, saying what they want to hear. And it seems to work, because it kind of calms them down, and they seem to be contented, at least in that moment. And then Gideon wants to give chase to continue after the rest of the Midianites that were, were uh, retreating. And so along the way, he and his men come to a town called Succoth. Great name for a town. Not. Not. Um, So they land at this town and they're tired and they're hungry and they ask for help. And And the people in Succoth say, no way, we're not helping you. We're not in, you know, like, uh uh-uh, we don't want to get a part of this. And Gideon is furious and comes at them with a very different response than he did to Ephraim. He comes at them with this anger and this resentment and this hatred that's boiling out of him. He's like, when we come back you're going to be tortured with thorns and briars. like We're going to whoop you guys like you have never been whooped. And he gives them these threats and ultimatums. And it, what he doesn't seem to catch is that very much like the place God found him, Wondering if God was really real. Wondering if God was really in this. Wondering if this was even, could this even happen? They're they're over here going like this, logically this doesn't make a lot of sense. You and your handful of soldiers going after the Midianites, telling us that you're gonna take their kings. These are the people that have oppressed us and hurt us and done great damage to us for years. And now you're telling us you're gonna conquer them with this small band of soldiers. If that doesn't happen, they're gonna come back and they're going to look for anybody that helped them. And we don't want to be amongst that. Like we're, We feel like it's safer to just say, hey, we were not in on that. And maybe they'll spare us, right? They're, they're trapped in fear. And Gideon could have given them a whole different story. Like, listen, this, I understand where you are. I've been where you were. Like, God sent an angel to come and speak with me and showed me evidence and, and, and proved to me that this was his plan and his will and that he was real and he was involved in it. And all of this happened. Like, he could have gave God credit for what God had done. And at least whether they came or not, he could have helped them understand, like, you're deciding if you want to help God and God's plan, not Gideon and Gideon's plan. But that's not what he did. He laid out this big threat and then they leave and they go to another town on the way, Peniel. And, and the similar thing happens there. They say, no, we're not going to help you. There's fear. That town was protected by a big tower and they were quite proud of that tower. And he says, well, when I come back, I'm going to tear this tower down. Right? Like, and he just makes more threats. So eventually he goes, he, by God's divine intervention and, intervention and grace, he is able to capture the Kings of the Midianites. Now, Again, it's like another battle won by these few hundred soldiers against great odds. It says in the text that there was 15,000 soldiers left with the Midianite kings, and it goes on to say that like 120,000 had already been killed. And so while 120,000 were killed, and that's insane, the fact that you're going 300 against 15,000 still seems pretty pretty crazy. And and, and they capture him. They capture the kings. And and Gideon, again, it's like time after time after time, there's these opportunities where things could have gone right. He could have stopped there and done what God's people have done so many times when God miraculously intervenes, reveals himself, rescues, helps. They could have stopped and made an altar to the God, uh, to the Lord right there and said like, we're going to call this place the place where God wins unwinnable wars. They could have set stones up to remember how amazing it is that when the odds are stacked against you, when you don't think there's any way you could ever come out on top, somehow, by God's grace, when God's involved, it goes different. right? He could have set this up and worshipped God that way, but he doesn't because he's so full of resentment and revenge and anger. It's like the first thing it seems like that's on his mind is... I remember the towns that we stopped in, and I remember what they told me. They said, oh, we'll feed you after you go get the kings. Like, finish the battle first, and then we'll help. And so he's like, guess where we're going. And so he takes the Midianite kings, he goes back to Peniel and Succoth, and he does exactly what he said he was going to do with anger and frustration. He tears down the tower, he tortures the leaders of the town of Succoth. And then he turns his attention to the kings of Midian. And he's, he turns his attention and his frustration, and we're going to learn that he's got some revenge that's been brewing for a long time. Take a look. Uh, it's in your notes. It's Judges chapter 8, verses 18 is where we're going to jump in. <clears throat> it says, Then Gideon asked uh, Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings, uh, of Midian of uh, Midian that we're talking about there. He asks them, the men that you killed at Tabor, what were they like? And so he's referencing something they were familiar with, a battle that they had been a part of previously, where Midianites had battled God's people and killed many people. And so he says, the men that you killed, what were they like? Like you, they replied. They all had the look of a king's son. They were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. So not just like my brother's Israelites, like not just my fellow kinsmen, they were my actual blood brothers, is what he's telling them. And Gideon exclaimed, as surely as the Lord lives, I wouldn't have killed you uh, if you hadn't killed them. Well, in turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword, for he was only a boy and was afraid. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said to Gideon, be a man, kill us yourself. So Gideon killed them both and took the royal ornaments from the necks of their camels So they had killed his brothers, and Gideon has this brewing resentment. And as he gets the opportunity, it's like, oh, finally, I've got my chance to get even. But he wants to get even in a really unique way. He looks at his son, who from the text says is a boy, and he's ordering him to kill these kings. It's like a a way to totally and completely humiliate them the great kings of Midian killed by a boy, right? But even in this, they play to his anger. They play to his growing pride. Oh, if you think you're so great, why don't you do it yourself? And then this story comes to this sort of really grisly, ugly kind of, end here that the Midianite army has been conquered, their kings have been captured and in the end instead of this altar to the Lord or worshipping God or God getting credit it's just this horrible messy murder where Gideon kills these kings at the end and he takes their decorations off of their camel, the kind of the things that indicated their royalty and their power and their influence and He strips the camels of those things. And what's interesting is the way that the Israelites respond at this point. Because the Israelites at this point... I think are in a couple of different camps. There's some who are like, oh my gosh, look at how awesome Gideon is. This is the kind of guy that we would want as a king. Look at what he has done. You know, Yeah, he followed God, but look at what he has done, right? And then there's others that heard the stories of Succoth and Peniel or were there, and they're like, "Um, I'm not pushing back against him. Like the last people that didn't do what he asked to do, look at how it went for them, right? So there's people that are, that are probably in a place of fear and worry and concern. And then there's people that are like thinking he's so amazing, but irregardless of where they are, where they land is they actually now want him to be king. Verse 22 says, then the Israelites said to Gideon, be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son, the Lord will rule over you. Now, This thing that he says right here might be the smartest thing that Gideon ever said. He's... People are trying to give him credit. They're asking him to take the authority of a king to be in charge and rule over them. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Like he He knows something in his head. He knows this thing is true, that our people are to be ruled by God and God alone. God is our king. We're unlike the nations around us. We don't have people as a king. We follow the one true God. And so out of his mouth comes the right thing but immediately following that we see that his actions don't really line up with what he said there starts to be this like crux of it doesn't feel like what you're saying and what you're doing lines up because he goes like this he, uh, the very next thing he does is he asks them all. It's it's a little bit like I'm not going to be your king, and the, and they're like, oh man, like what a what a good guy. He didn't take all this authority. He didn't take the opportunity that he could have. Who knows exactly what they're thinking? But he's like, but now that I, but but since you're here, since I have your attention, since you're clearly devoted and interested, how, would it be too much to ask for everybody to donate a little tribute, like kick in a little, you know, like reward for what has happened here. It's very much like, hey, pay tribute to the king. He's like, I am not going to be your king, but I wouldn't mind some king-like benefits. And so he asks them all for gold earrings to contribute, and they contribute those, and they pitch them all in, and they pitch in, and then he takes the ornaments and stuff that he had taken from the Midianite kings, and then he forms them, it says in the text, he makes them into an ephod, and everybody in here gasps. Not an ephod. <sighs> right? And then you get on your phone and you ask Google, what is an ephod? Some of you know. But an ephod is a very, very, very important and sacred garment to God's people. And he thought as essentially like for practical purposes to get the right thing in your mind a vest. But it's a really special vest. Designed in a very specific way with specific decoration and and on it even as I kind of incorporated into the vest were these two stones, the Urim and Thummim. They were the stones that were used by the priest, the high priest, to uh, ask of questions of God and kind of get yes or no answers. This particular garment, there was to be one. And it was only to be worn by a priest who came only from the tribe of Levi. And the priest would wear this garment and it was part of their priestly duties to represent God's people, to connect between God and the people, to offer sacrifices, to speak with the the Lord or make requests of the Lord. And where this garment resided was really important because it was in the site of where God's people worshiped God, which was at the tabernacle. And at this time, it was in a place called Shiloh. And so... Where this garment was located was important because it, it was connected to where God was. It was connected to the priest that would wear it to speak with God on behalf of God's people. And Gideon does something really unheard of. He makes a copy, basically has a, uh, someone commission, he commissions a copy of an ephod, that particular garment made from really the spoils of war. This tribute that you would normally give a king, but he's not the king because he didn't want the job. And then he takes that ephod, that royal garment, and he sets it up in his hometown, not where the tabernacle is, where God resides among his people, somewhere new, somewhere different. And you can imagine how that really plays out. And we get a glimpse of it in verse 27 says that Gideon made that sacred ephod from gold and put it in Ophrah his hometown but soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshipping it and became a trap and it became a trap for Gideon and his family and just in that little glimpse we start to get an uh, an idea of the problems that were coming as as a result of the way Gideon was behaving, the things that he was doing, the fact that the the writer of Judges can say that, that all the Israelites, it didn't take long, it's like Gideon does this thing, he makes the Sephod, he sets it up in his town, away from Shiloh, away from where the tabernacle, away from where God resided among his people, he sets it up over here and it says it didn't take long and all of God's people began to prostitute themselves by worshiping it. And that language, the, that, that word, is an uncomfortable word. We don't even like like saying it in church. It feels a little bit like, eh, should I say that? Should I not say it? right It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's because of what it represents and what we know it means. And that's exactly what the writer is trying to illustrate. Like, God's people are set apart to be his people, his holy nation, his representatives, to be in lockstep with him like a husband is with a wife and a wife is with a husband, committed, united, exclusive. And then they start to do things that you would only do with God, but they do them with this fake over here. And it, it just starts to go from bad to worse. As we see the story unfold, Gideon's king like actions just keep growing. Uh, verse 30 says that he had 70 sons born to him uh, because he had many wives. 70 sons? Hello. Right? This is king like activity. For a guy that says, I'm not your ruler, God's the king. We are all of a sudden a long ways away from Gideon in the wine press who told the angel of the Lord, surely you must have the wrong guy because I'm from the lowest tribe of all of the Israelites. I'm from a small family within my tribe, and I'm nobody in my family. Like I am not a person of power or authority. Nobody's going to listen to me. I don't have influence. Like I don't come from the right place. And God's like... God's calling him out and saying, no, God sees you as a mighty man of valor. But that's not what God had in mind. Like, God didn't have this in mind down the road. And then in verse 31, we get some interesting detail here. He says that he's also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech. And just as a little side note i know many of you know this but just as a reminder like whenever you're reading the text and you're you're kind of trucking along and you come across details that seem like maybe over the top or stick out like out of the ordinary or 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 particularly sometimes when you see details and you you could ask yourself would it change the story if that stuff wasn't there and then you're like, okay, well then why is it there, right? Like, because right before it says that he had 70 sons and he had a whole bunch of wives. Why do we, in the very next sentence, get this detail about, but he had a concubine in a specific place and he named him a specific name? We don't learn the names of the other 70 sons, Why did we specifically get this information? And so whenever you see those things, just by way of just kind of learning as you're growing and studying God's word, chase those things down. I always call them rabbit trails, right? Chase those rabbit trails down and see why that information is there. For us in this particular story, what's really important is that we don't miss the fact that it's, it's significant that it was in this place Shechem because Shechem is a really, really important place to God's people for a number of reasons. First of all, if you go all the way back to Abraham and you remember when God called Abraham and said, go to the place I will show you. He asked him to leave all of his, his, his place and pack up and go to a new place. He was doing something amazing with Abraham. And, he, and so Abraham responds In great faith, he packs up and obeys God. He doesn't know where he's going. The place that he ended up was Shechem. And in Shechem it's where God says to Abraham like look around at all of the nations around you like when I said I'm going to make you a blessing to other people that you're going to be a great nation you're going to have so many descendants they're going to be like sand on the seashore like when I told you all of those things this place right here God says now that you're here look around as far as you can see in every direction this is the place that's going to belong to your descendants this is where the story is going to unfold and he gave him that Clarity and that message and that promise at Shechem, and then fast forward a mere six hundred years later, Moses has led God's people out of Israel. He's rescued them. He's led them through the wilderness, and and, and then we're at this kind of uh, um, passing of the torch of leadership, where Moses is is uh, passing on the leadership of God's people to Joshua, and Joshua is going to be the person that leads God's people across the Jordan River into the promised land, the land that he had showed Abraham. And that passing of the torch, that handing off, that new leadership that was taking place happened at Shechem. There's some really fascinating other things that play in that we don't have time to unpack today as well. But Shechem is an important place. And of all the sons, all the 70 sons, we find out that this one was born to a concubine, which is essentially just saying a a lower-class wife, not on the same level as the others. So this lower-class wife of his gives birth to a son in this really important place, and he's named Abimelech, which if you translate the Hebrew pretty literally, it actually means my father is the king. Real subtle. So of all these 70 sons, we don't know, we don't get to unpack any of this stuff, but the one that we get to learn his name and we get to learn the place, it's pretty important that, that the, the place where, where God Promised that this was going to be the land for his people, where God handed over authority to Joshua to lead his people in there. That that Gideon has the gall and the audacity to take the son that's born there and say, My dad's the king. Which doesn't really line up with him saying, I don't want to be your king, right? Because if we just keep going back over the story of Gideon, we see that he starts off humble. He starts off afraid. He needs a lot of reassurance. He needs a lot of help. He needs proof. I mean, concrete proof that God's real, that God is showing him that he is who he said he is, that his plans are the plans that, that he's calling Gideon to, that He wants to know, am I doing the right thing? Am I following the right God? And God's patient with him and reassures him. And then all the way along, like through these victories, through these battles, God reveals himself to be exactly who he said he was and to do exactly what he said he would do. But somehow in the mix of all that, when there starts to be some success, when the threat of the enemy is at bay, the persecution and oppression feels relieved, he starts to act differently. Even though he knew the right thing, he starts to act differently. And, and I think what we can learn from Gideon is that it, the things that he fell prey to the things that he wrestled with that sort of cropped up in some unhealthy ways that weren't all that awesome, it's the same kind of stuff that we can succumb to, that we can wrestle with. If you ever wonder why when you read James, he says, count it all joy. Count what all joy? When suffering comes your way. And it's always such a hard one. It's like, wait a minute, what? It's because when things are hard, when you're suffering, when you're being persecuted, when you're being oppressed, when things are difficult, it's not that that God's excited that life is terrible and difficult for you. It's just that we know from experience when things are desperate and we cry out to God like in intuitive, desperate prayer. We don't have to conjure it up. We don't have to think about it. We just pray because we know we need God. There's something really awesome about that, And when we start to experience success and the, the risks are gone and life is good and things are working out, it's just naturally easier to slide into that land of like kind of taking credit for the success and, and sort of liking a little tribute here and there and, 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 and starting to ha- live in a way where what we know and what we do doesn't line up that well. In the world we live in, we have a word for that, and it's a word that is the bane of the church. It's called hypocrisy. And none of us like it. Whether it's in church, whether it's with employees that you work with, or a teammate on a team, or with it's one of your brothers or sisters, like when people know something, and they say what they know or believe, and then they do something different, it just bugs us. It's like we're wired to dislike hypocrisy, which is not a bad thing. The problem is, as Jesus knew, we're also naturally inclined to be bothered by the hypocrisy we see in others, more so than the stuff that shows up in us. And that's why as we think about this stuff, we're wise to remember his teaching that we should look to the log in our own eye before we kind of highlight the speck in somebody else's when we start thinking about hypocrisy and how it shows up. And so what I want to do is just kind of finish up with looking at a few things that I think can help us um, personally. Um, If you were to be able to go back in Gideon's story and kind of say to him, like, hey, what if... What if we could have some things just kind of like some warnings? What if we could hand you a note that said, something's not right at any given point in the story? Wouldn't that have helped? Like for us in, the, in, in our world, it would be a little bit like driving around and we have this dash full of warning lights. When one of those lights goes off, it gives you pause. Like, wait a minute, pause. Like, is it serious? Like I, I had one one time and it, I had no idea what it was. so I had to look it up and it said, it was, I had a light to tell me that my washer fluid was low. I didn't know they made lights for that. Is that urgent? Not really. Could it wait until I got home or whenever? Yeah. So sometimes it's like, this doesn't mean it's pressing tomorrow, but it needs addressed. Other times it's like, you need to know because this is about to wreck everything if you, don't, if you just ignore it. And so I think same, uh, similarly in our spiritual walk, when we know that hypocrisy is something that any of us can easily kind of Succumb to or even accidentally start in. Like, it's like we just naturally can be drawn away from, like, day by day being super faithful to the Lord. The world that we live in pulls us away. And, and we're over here going, like, we don't want to follow in Gideon's shoes. We want to follow in the shoes of people that just really stick tight with the Lord, good times and bad. And so there's some things that might go off on the dash that might give us a little indicator like, hey, stop, pause, reflect, look inside. Don't worry about the speck you're seeing in other people around you. Like where, in fact, worry less about that. Like, Look at your own stuff so that we don't go down the road that Gideon went to. And so I just want to go through a few of these for you. Um, and we'll just kind of go through them quickly. And then, you know, if there's one that particularly hits you, and you're like, oh, man, that's one that the, I, I feel like I've seen that warning light go off several times in my little life car dash, you know, then you're like, maybe that's the Lord going, hey, pause and look at this. Dig into it. So one of them is infrequent prayer. Um, when you realize that you're not really praying a lot and if you're like, eh, I've never really had a really good discipline of prayer. And other people are like, I'm really disciplined. I, every, I pray at such and such time. And praying out of discipline is awesome. Like the fact that you have a, I, I, th- this is a priority to me. And even when I don't feel like it, I know it's not part of my life I want to miss. That's great. Praying out of like spontaneous desperation is really good as well. And so however you go, like if you haven't prayed and you're not praying often, maybe that's a warning light, like check, right? Uh, The second thing would be like failure to consult others and so not getting wise counsel. Along the way, Gideon went from listening to the Lord and, and like desperately depending on God's direction and intervention to just sort of going, I know what I'm doing and just marching off on his life, doing things his own way. And so getting wise counsel, surrounding yourself with people that can uh, bounce ideas off of and, and ask for prayer, ask for, you know, hey, here's the situation I'm in. And how do I integrate my faith into this job thing? Like, how do I walk through this? And asking for help is super wise. The second thing is, uh, um, or sorry, third thing is uh, resentment. When it's all about you, you resent the people that get in your way. And man, we really saw that play out in Gideon's life. It went from being all about God, totally dependent on God, trusting God to lead him and direct him. And then when it started to become about him, when there started to be some success, and he started to crop up those thoughts of like, what if I did catch him? I could get even with the guys that killed my brother. I could throw it in the face of the people that thought I would never be able to succeed, right? It started to shift to be about him, And resentment grew. That's definitely something to wrestle with. If you're feeling yourself being resentful, frustrated, thoughts of revenge, or or like I could prove, that's a warning light. Pause, stop, reflect. The, The next thing is materialistic excess. And we've all seen people that appear to be overcompensating with stuff. If... If you're trying to show who you are and what you're worth by your stuff, it's like that's a pause, right? Gideon's over here going like with with his mouth, I'm not going to be the king. That's not my job. That's God's job. But then he takes materialistic things and forms them into king-like stuff. And it's like, this is who I'm not. But then it sort of looks, it's like, well, those don't line up. Like, it looks like you're trying to build a life where you're the king of everything. So those are things to take caution of and to be, think, uh, be thoughtful of. And then the last thing is just constantly worrying about your name. When it's, when it's all about you, you're always guarding and defending your own reputation. And nobody likes somebody saying something about you that's not true. None of us like that nobody like none of us like hearing that people are gossiping about us behind our back or saying things about us that are maybe untrue or are partly true or exaggerated like that bugs any of us the question is like how does it feel for us i just i just share this little thought with you to to just stir and to get you thinking like how does it feel when people talk bad about Jesus and they say things that are untrue about God? When people belittle God's word or talk down about Christians in general or say horrible things about the bride of Christ, the church, that you don't think are probably even true. Like, do you get that same angst that stirs when someone says something that's not right about you? Are you quick to defend yourself? But are we quick to defend the Lord? Are we quick to kind of go, I, like, that bugs me. I don't like it when you say that. Like, my God is good. And so, so those are just some things that, that I think, it's not the exhaustive list by any means, but I think those are just some things that we can kind of take away from Gideon and learn. Um, and help guide us, like, how do we make sure that as we kind of experience, like, trusting and following God, and seeing God is real, and, and seeing that God's at work in our lives, and as things, and we go into those seasons where things sort of, the, the risk goes away, the, the, like, the difficult season goes away, and things are starting to work, and things are starting to go good, and there's that moment where we're like, this is only going good because God's been at work in it, and God's done it, and by God's grace, I get to experience this, and then it's like, days go by and it's like God's grace getting the credit and God getting the credit starts to shift easily to us giving ourselves the credit. How do we avoid that? And so those are some things that I hope maybe will help us as we're following the Lord. Hey, let's finish with communion. Um, When you walked in this morning, you got one of these uh, communion cups and um, coincidentally, if anybody ever needs extra one, they're just right outside the door on the table there. But every week as a church, we take communion together. And it's not something that's like a legalistic thing where you have to do it, and if you don't do it, you're wrong. And if you go to a different church and they don't take communion every week, it's totally, it's, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. We take it every week as a church because we want to really kind of um, follow and honor Jesus's words when he said, as often as we get together, let's take this in remembrance of him. And so, for us, we just want to take advantage of the opportunity to get the family together. I have five kids, and I was trying to get two of them here for the weekend, and I got one, right? Like, it's, if you have a family, you understand it's hard to get everybody together. And so when we get everybody together on the weekends, we want to pause and remember what Jesus has done for us because this is core to our faith. This is core to our family, is remembering Jesus and that our walk is about following him and letting him be king, not us. So this morning as we take communion, we take the bread out and we remember the body of Jesus broken for us as we take the bread. And with the cup, we remember the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So let's take the cup. Let me pray for us. Man, Lord, we love you, and I just pray that you would, God, just keep teaching us, keep helping us to become closer and closer to you, more and more like your son. God, help us in our, in our just everyday daily walk to stay faithful to you. And God, when we're off, just so grateful we can count on you to be like you were with Gideon, to reassure us, to give us, to be patient with us, to give us proof, to, to just be right there with us, to walk through us, even when we're nervous or afraid. And for that we're super grateful, Lord. So we just love you. And just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from real life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.